I have two IKEA cubes, the perfectly mm-hmm. square ones. You know, the ones that are perfect for records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they discontinued those a while ago. They did, but mine There's are a big old. run on them. Yeah, I was uh, very excited to yeah um, restore mine. I'm surprised you didn't like just build some, right? <laughs> I, sh- I should, but that takes that takes time. So I'm very big into like there are two cubes for board games, two cubes for records, and I don't even know what's in the other cubes. It's like there's probably like seven cubes for tote bags because uh-huh. everything I do, I get a free tote bag. I don't think I've played a board game outside of Sorry's and Troubles. Oh, and see, that. those are those are boring. Well, I mean, those are like the when you're a kid, you traditionally, play, right? yeah, like a like a Monopoly, yeah. Which is like how you find out your friends are horrible jerks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you find like, out the capitalists in your <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. I, I I'm bad at Monopoly. Which you're like, there's not something you could be bad at. And I was like, no, I'm straight up bad at Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, oh, I'm not gonna build that hotel. It's okay. These are the people who are not gonna be artists when they yeah, grow up. <laughs> exactly. I was very good at operation though, mm-hmm. because I figured out that if I we had lost the back to the battery. Yeah. So if I put my hand underneath and just casually move my finger a tiny bit, I can make it so the battery didn't connect right. And I could just, like, be hitting you the sides. You were good at cheating at operation. I was good at cheating at operation. But in my mind, learning how to cheat was part sure. of the game, you know? I had a girlfriend in college, and her uh, younger brother was, like, just a musical prodigy. Like, mm-hmm. he, he would see, like, a steel drum and just, like, immediately know how to play. Just teach himself oh. by ear all these. One day, somebody brought a Rubik's Cube home, and he, oh, he like, took it. And he just like walked out of the room for a minute, came back, and it was solved. And they realized that he had taken all the stickers off Heal and the stickers. Put them on. So, you know, I mean, it's like a it's a success of 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 a sort, right? Yeah, it's like a magician trick. Yeah, you it's know? like a life hack. It's the same thing. Like whenever I play any card games with my friends, I'm always like, I will look at your cards if you let me. So don't let me see your. And I tell them when their cards are showing, I was like, stop showing me your cards because I'm gonna look. What's your top board game? Oh, I know. Um, I know they're like children. Pandemic Cthulhu edition. Okay, <laughs> it's probably so my favorite. C- Cthulhu being Cthulhu. one of the old ones. Yes, um, and as the game goes on, you awaken old ones. Mm-hmm. And is this officially licensed? It is. I guess I don't know. Yeah, no, Lovecraft it's not. Estate, yeah. <laughs> it's officially licensed from Pandemic. Okay, <laughs> not from Cthulhu. Probably. Yeah. I don't know if they contacted the old ones and they're like, "Hey, guys. Oh, no, no, I mean Lovecraft. I don't mean. The <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I mean the real uh, guy's a real dirtbag. I don't know how much you know Lovecraft about Lovecraft or Cthulhu. Both oh, of them both probably. Cthulhu's <laughs> kind of a piece of shit too, if I'm being honest. I mean, but you look at him; he's like he's yeah. been through a lot. That phase, come on. Sure, he's an old one. He is an old he's one. Lived, he's, he's like, get them. off my lawn yeah. and also worship me. But yeah, it's it's one of my favorites because it will just mess you up. It is one of those games where you could be winning so well and you have one hand and it will kill everybody and it's a cooperative game that's my thing i like co-op games so i'm not super into board games where you're like fighting with people but any game where it's like it's a group of people working together i get like super friendship high and i'm like yeah we're fighting cthulhu together that's kind of like life right it kind of just like one one thing goes wrong and and everything back at square one yeah Yeah. can i swear please yeah shit i said it (laughs) is your mom listening to a lot of podcasts uh she used to listen to some podcasts she used to listen to my old podcast which is how she found out certain things about me (laughs) so you know you did some interviews around the, the book yeah do you feel like given this book and the subject matter that it kind of like gives interviewers liberty to ask you super personal questions yes yes and i don't know how to answer them <laughs> i'm just like well i mostly like guys but every now and then i'll have a question it's like why do we have to explain this well, no, <laughs> it's I... like, but it's a really masculine girl and sometimes they transition sure. <laughs> well you mean why do you have to explain this from the standpoint of like why do you feel like you need to like justify it yourself or, or why are people asking the question in the first i mean place? i understand they want it to be uh 
they want to be like, oh, is this an own voices? That's like a sure. big term in YA's own voices. and Like writing about yeah. something you've lived through. When they, they basically were like, oh, this is an own voices when I wrote it. And yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but I was like, but it is about a Catholic family and it is about this, like, you know, a lot of the characters are not based on real people but are based on events and mm-hmm. the way people treated it. It was mostly my older sister who came yeah. out of the closet. And my family was not great about it. Um, took them 10 years. Immediate or extended? Because uh, your, your immediate family seems pretty cool from what actually, I've gathered. Actually, it was immediate. Really? Yeah. My mother just couldn't handle it. And I realized, like... That's so strange because, like, everything I know about your family, they seem very They're chill. amazing. They're yeah. amazing. And they've figured it out. But in their eyes... It's just weird thing. It was not so much anything other than they thought my sister... This meant my sister was going to hell. Mm. And it was like, how do you save your daughter kind yep. of thing. So it wasn't so much about a... It was coming from a goodish place. It was place. coming from a goodish place, but it was a very uncomfortable thing where I was yeah. like, I'd be like eating cereal. And my mom would come to the room and be like, hey, you know, your sister's going to hell. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> like eating my cereal. Yeah. And like, I didn't have a curfew if I hung out with my male friends or if I went on a date. But if I hung out with my female friends, I had a curfew of 10. Wait, uh, because of your sister? Because of my sister. They didn't want they you to They were turn so gay. scared that, yeah, and yeah. my mom... You know, blamed it on her short hair, blamed it on this and that. And it was one of these, like, you know, trying to figure out where they went wrong. And meanwhile, my sister was, like, the straight-A student. She was the – not only was she, like, a, a star athlete, she was, like, national-level star athlete. Like, she was this amazing softball catcher. And I was like, you know, I got decent grades. And I'm just going to say she was a softball catcher and no one, no one figured it I out. I know. You know how I figured it out? And <laughs> was um, it was the 80s. Uh-huh. And um, – she had one wall that was like her wall of crushes, and it was all pictures from like uh, Tiger Beat sure. and you know Bop. bop. Yeah, <laughs> all the greats. I also had an older sister. I was gonna say, I was like, did you also have a Bop wall? <laughs> like, I, I had an older am sister. I learning something about you? Right I had an older now? sister who tra- transitioned from uh, Alex P. Keaton to Kurt Cameron. Oh, ooh, that's yeah. a that's from one right in the pocket. Yeah, exactly, a Republican to a crazy person. Yeah. Um. <laughs> That's also, I think I might have just figured out something about my sister. So this has been a very helpful episode. Uh, my sister had a lot of people on the wall and it was mostly the Corys and she had both. Mm. And she had a lot of each one. That Are you allowed like, to like both Corys? That's what I thought. So as a kid, I was like, nobody likes both Corys. Yeah. Like everybody chooses a Cory. There was the handsome Cory and then the kind of goofy Yeah. And Corey. then the weirdo Cory yeah. that like. The Feldman. The one yeah. who hung out with Michael Jackson. Yes, exactly. He had his thing. But there were definitely a lot of people that went for that Feldman. That Feldman. That Corey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Feldmans. The two. <laughs> um, and she had this tiny little picture of her softball coach, like, next to them. And I remember as, like – and I was probably, like, eight or nine. And I saw her wall and I was like, oh, she likes her coach. And, like, it just made sense to me. And, um, you know, flash forward to when she's 18 and finally comes out of the closet in a really sad, horrible way with a friend being horrible to her. It basically was her best friend. She told her best friend that she was gay. Her best friend freaked out, was worried people were going to accuse her of being gay, too, and started telling people that my sister attacked her. Hmm. It was so messed up. And me and my sister were not friends at this point at all. Like, she wanted nothing to do with me. I was a little hyper and a little uh, a little annoying. You're making a face. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, what was being the operative word? And I remember I went into her room. It was late at night, and the lights were off, so I assumed she wasn't there. And I was going to steal a sweater because I had nothing to wear to school mm-hmm. the next day. And I was like, oh, man, she's not going to notice. And I get in her room and I, like, go to the closet. And then I hear her on her bed crying. And, like, my sister's like, she's super tough. She never cries. And I turned around and I remember I was like, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? And, like, crying, she was like, clean, I'm gay. 
And I walked up to her and I just like punched her as hard as I could in the arm. And I said, duh. (laughs) And I grabbed the sweater and walked out of her room. Um, And that's like the greatest. She always says she's like, there was no other response you could have had that would have been as good. Like it was the first time that I felt normal since I like realized. Yeah. It was a bit of a hate crime. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hindsight. (laughs) You know. Um, But then I I went on to uh, fight with the girl the next day. And so one of my only two fights in my life were. uh, Yeah. Jumping a, a very large basketball player. <laughs> How did your parents finally come around? Um, actually, it was my mother having double hip replacement surgery. Ten years after my sister came out of the closet, um, my mom had really bad hip problems for mm-hmm. years, so she had gained a lot of weight. And they basically said, like, you know, we're going to put you under, but since you're overweight, there's all these complications, and there, here are possibilities of what could happen. And, you know, hearing the possibility that something could go wrong and that maybe that, you know... She could pass away during the surgery. She kind of had this moment of being like, oh, my gosh, I've been ignoring my daughter. And at the time, my sister was in, like, this super awesome relationship with this wonderful woman for, like, five years and living together and essentially had a son together. So it was, like, kind of, like, having that moment of realizing that you've been kind of distancing yourself from your child for no reason other than who they love. But that doesn't really um, address the hell thing. Have they they been able to reconcile that? I think she's – I don't know. I think there may be a little more – I mean, the, the church has kind of changed that. a yeah, little bit, right? The church has changed a little bit. Yeah. I, I really don't know. Yeah. Like, I've never asked my mom because I don't want to know the answer. I mean, she told me I was like, uh, I got sick once pretty badly. And she told me it was because I was watching Doctor Who. Like, because it was like, I don't know. It was... Satanic or... I don't know what yeah. it was. <laughs> no, but, but like, but, but you know, you can empathize. I mean, it's, you know, especially from somebody who came from a religious family from mm-hmm. like, God, if you are worried that your daughter is going to spend eternity in hell. You kind of want to do what you can to To point them in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. And I think she just understands now that it is 100% not a choice and it's nothing she did. And it's just my sister has always been. How different would the book have been if you had said in the 80s? I feel like it would have been a little too disconnected with teens nowadays. Mm. So it was set in 2004, which is an interesting time because, you know, there's cell phones exist and a lot of the – you know, chat things like instant messenger was a big thing then still. Um, but they're things that feel very similar to the way we communicate now. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it still feels contemporary, but has this kind of looking back at like the fact that in 15 years, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, and I said it that year too, partially because it was the first year I started writing it. It was a very, very long process, wow. yeah. <laughs> but it was also the year they first legalized gay marriage. Mm-hmm. So I liked the idea of setting it in this, like, time period where it was, like, right before a big civil rights movement. Sure. Still under Bush. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, the there's membranes. a – yeah, um, what was it? A car- – I forget what it is. It was a Bush-McCain sign on somebody's lawn, which is one of the only indications. Oh, Bush-Cheney. Yeah. Bush-Cheney. There we go. Yeah. Just <laughs> Bush-McCain. They got together. It's an alternate reality book. Sure. They, they, <laughs> they, they realized their love for it each other. Bush and, and Nixon. <laughs> they had – they gay married each other. Mm-hmm. And they went against Harold and Kumar. I saw that movie. <laughs> what kept bringing you back? I mean, that's a long time to be working on something. I mean, it was the first thing I ever did. And it was, for me, it was a big... It was the first script you wrote? It was the first, yeah. It was the first script I ever really tried to write. Yeah. I mean, I tried to write picture books and things like that. And it was just, I was working at um, the Association of Children's Book Publishers, the Children's Book Council. And part of my job was to put every book that got published that year into a library. 
And so I would just sit there. I was a receptionist, and I would just, you know, answer the phones, answer if anybody came to the door, you know, get packages, and I would just sit there reading. And it was like I had access to every single mm. book. And it was when YA was just starting. I mean, YA really became a thing in 2000, probably 2000, 2002. Now, what, what does that mean, just starting? I mean, it's certainly one of those things that, like, now feels like it's been a designation forever. But yeah. they, were, they were people were really just starting to differentiate that from children's books? Yeah, kind of. There was, like, this big gap. And there was a few. There was, like, oh, here's, like, The Outsiders. That's for teens. Sure. But basically they were, like, by the time you're – It was a book from the 50s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, like, when you're 14, you start reading, like – Wuthering Heights, you know, it's yeah. like there was this big disconnect between, and there were books. You had your like Wrinkle teens. in Time. I mean, there were yeah, some. Yeah, the Wrinkle in Time would now be considered, um, we call it middle grade, okay. which is upper elementary, just to be confusing. <laughs> really go back to the Let's get a chart. YA is like middle school, so junior high. YA school? is um, 14 or, to 18. Okay. Yeah. So it's like um, junior high through high school. Basically. Basically. Yeah. So it's, it's, once the hormones kick in. That's what I always say is the difference. Because there's books for, like, 13-year-olds yeah. that are not as hormonal. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's – and there's upper um, middle grade. And there is kind of, like, a little, like, gap of, like – you know, there aren't many books directly for 13-year-olds, you know, because it's, like, that weird age in between. Is, is that the pocket for this book? No. This book is older. Yeah. This book – there the characters are 16. They make the decisions that 16-year-olds make, which are bad – um, everybody makes bad decisions in this book, which I wanted to showcase. But in 2004, when I started it, so I had read all these books, mm-hmm. and there's only maybe eight or nine books that even can like featured any LGBTQ mm-hmm. characters at all. There were no books with trans characters. There were no books with bi characters, and I thought these were two very underrepresented things. And you know, I wanted there to be a book for those teens as well. So I wanted to talk about how it was in my family. And also, you know, my extended family, as they found out about my sister, they were super supportive. And this is an extended family full of nuns and people that were going to be priests until they met another nun and then they got married. I didn't I, – I'm sure yeah. that I realized this at some point and we must have talked about this at some point. But do you have two nuns in – Yes. Two aunts who are nuns. Yes. And another one was a nun until she met my uncle who was studying to be a priest. What happened to you? What happened to me? <laughs> now, honestly, I in middle school, I kind of thought I was going to be a nun. Yeah? I was like thinking about it. I was like, that sounds cool. And then I was like, hormones, never mind. So boys. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then for a while, I was like convinced I could still become a saint. I was really into being a saint. It's not too late. I guess. I, I got Teresa was up there when she True. So yeah, I wanted beatified. to be like animals. I was like, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you get to be a saint for helping animals other than like. I think you just have to perform a miracle. Oh, yeah. What, what was the CC's like the big animal guy, right? True, yeah. Walking around with like Francis. birds like, uh, like, like Snow White. The, yeah. Yeah. So I just got to walk around with my arms out and hope birds, <laughs> like pigeons, yeah, just land coat on me. yourself with seed. <laughs> with the animals. <laughs> In 2018, 2019, is, is there still pushback in writing a book about uh, based around gay characters for that age group? Surprising, the pushback was from the other direction, which I was in terms of in terms of it being people being upset that there were homophobic and transphobic characters, and people being like, "This isn't realistic. No one would be this horrible." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I yeah. watered some of these things down, like the things I heard from people that you know were very. Um, in all of their ways, liberal, like, accepting people, but the things they said when they didn't know. It's bizarre because it, it does seem like, you know, in the last 
three years, yeah. a lot of that has come to the front. Come like these things again. that, you know, I think that we thought that we were past, it's like clear yeah. that they've not gone away and the people are empowered. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's everybody's, I mean, you go upstate and I grew up about two hours north and suddenly there's Confederate flags and I'm like, did you guys understand yeah. how north and south works? Yeah. Like, you know, they listen to country music. There's a huge um, KKK, like group there like it just is this really strange and that always had been there like and i knew about it in high school and i knew about like oh this so-and-so's family they're kkk members maybe the disconnect is is you know is i think i think people do realize that exists but it's it, it's now like an it's other open. but no but also but yeah. like and, and that has always exists but it's been in pockets and it's been in certain part of parts of the country yeah and maybe people have difficulty of examining that you know you can be an otherwise fairly like liberal person and still harbor these beliefs yeah yeah i mean i was shocked with the number of people that voted for a certain person that i grew up with and just like great people really great people and then you start asking them the reasons why and some of the reasons are you're like oh my gosh you always thought this like oh dear okay (laughs) i know you build fences for a living but no thank you about the wall but okay cool (laughs) You think people voted for Trump because they were just pro-fence? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're like – all the construction workers are like, you know what? I'm not really yeah. like racist, but you know, I yeah. love building stuff and like building a cool thing. The bathroom <laughs> thing was just such a weird flashpoint, the trans bathroom thing. Oh my thing. gosh, yeah. Yeah, it was so – it was so like loud in a good way but also in a horrible way and it just – I think most of the conversations around it were, were this just sort of like reactionary – like it was like it, it very much it struck me as a sort of um, a right wing radio yeah. thing, like talking point that nobody else really was talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even I mean, I remember ugh, and I hate saying it, but um, the Village Voice, when I first got out of college, they had a huge section of the back that was just she males. And I remember being like, yeah. is that an OK term? And that was like back in like this was like 2003, 2004. Yeah. Yeah. People were still using that term. To the point that it would be like on 10 pages in the back of a liberal paper. And like it just – it felt like that was a group that wasn't getting as much attention as they needed and wasn't getting respect. You're talking about them sort of being framed like purely as like sex objects, right? Because the back of the – for those who don't know. Oh my gosh. The back of the village voices, it's – I mean – It was advertisements for services. It was sex ads. That too. I'm assuming they also like would put – I don't know. No, they were a all sconce on a wall. I don't know. They, they, those, they, they, those were all escort ads. Were, it was like the task rabbit of the day. Only yeah. the task was sex. No, it was always, the, yeah. always sex. Uh, which is a which is something rabbits are quite. I mean, good task at. rabbit would actually be a pretty good name. For that. <laughs> Sorry, I will not. I said back page. There was something that got like shut down recently after FISA, like back pages or something. Oh, I don't know. There was a thing for that. Craigslist, I think, was the it's a big thing in the interim. Yeah. It was, it was all of- that's where all when all the uh, alt weekly started go anyway. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. How much of a sounding board was your sister through through the process of writing this book? I didn't show it to her until it was done. Really? Yeah, she didn't actually see any of it because I didn't. Did she wanna- know you were working on it? She knew I was working on it, and I had kind of you know asked permission to be like, I want to write about because you know when I started writing it, my parents were still not really talking much to her. How was that recently? Now it's great. Yeah. Though my parents still won't read the book. Huh. So, um, because it hits too close to home, or just the subject matter in general? I think it hits too close to home, but not in the way of like being ashamed of, you know, our family or my sister or anything. But I think it's being ashamed of how they acted, and they don't like people knowing that they went through this um, process of accepting. 
But I think it's important for people to realize, like, sometimes they're not necessarily just, like, straight-up bad people. And that was one of my big points in the book was, like, I want everybody to be gray. I don't want there to be a good guy and a bad guy. There's, mm-hmm. like, a couple people that are pretty crappy. But in general, everybody makes bad decisions. And I wanted the church to not be the bad guy. And that was the other really common theme with the YA books at the time where, like, it was like, oh, the church is attacking, the church is attacking. And I was like, yeah, actually, there's a lot of really great people in the church that are super accepting and in, you know, the 50s and 60s, if you were a gay woman, nunhood was a really great way to, like, avoid people but, but forcing you to But marry. there's a church and there's a church. I mean, yeah. like, <laughs> I'm going to go out on and say, like, historically, the Catholic Church in the 20th century has not been a very no. good institution. But again, but you're saying the people in the church. Individual people yeah. are have the capacity to be kind and wonderful. And, you know, like, Jesus was, like, BFFs with a prostitute, and it was cool. So... Why nice, couldn't it be Nice cool Jewish or... boy from Bethlehem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> based on this conversation, based on other interviews that you've done, you're at a point now where you feel comfortable talking about the book from the standpoint of how it was informed by your own life and your, and your sister and your parents. Um, before the book comes out, do you have a frank conversation with your parents and say, hey, listen, like – I'm going to be doing some podcast or I'm going to be talking to paste and like this, these things are going to come up and I'm going to, and I feel like I have to speak frankly about them. I mean, I've never been, I just am very honest all the time. You're honest, but and you're one of the most that. empathetic people I know. Well, I think you're a very kind person. Yeah. So I don't want to ever make anyone uncomfortable. And that's why whenever I talk about my parents, I talk about like, for them, this was also a journey. And I wanted in the book it to be like, her father is a journey. It's like, in every YA book, it's coming of age, coming of age. But I was like, dude, her father comes of age in this book, too. Like, yeah. he figures stuff out. But obviously, it's still painful for them. It they, is. They can't read it. I think it's more, actually, <laughs> the interesting part was my mom went to, my parents did come to my book release party, which was very lovely. And my mother cringed the whole time I was reading, which was hard to watch. But I think it was more because she hasn't read the book, and so she doesn't actually know the arc of the mother character. And the mother who is not based on her in any way other than – actually, the mother is the first person to accept her, really. Mm. Um, I'm spoiling everything, guys. (laughs) It's been out for a while. And then he didn't have a limp at all. (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to just throw lots of spoilers out here. (laughs) It was Kevin Spacey? Yes, Kevin Spacey was in the movie. Oh, God. We just can't talk about anyone anymore. No, my goodness. Yeah, it's horrible. So she doesn't know. She doesn't know the arc of the book. I mean, I, I, I no. feel like you would want to almost like tell her that I like, she's an empathetic. I was like, character. the mom is actually probably she winds up being a lot of people's favorite character because yeah. you realize halfway through the book that she's not this like stone cold ice queen Barbie as she gets called in the very beginning, and she gets called a bitch many times. But you're a teenage girl. You call sure. your mom the b word. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it's just what happens. And then you realize that she's been the one person in this family that's been forced to be the one adult. Mm. You know, while her husband is, like, having this super friendship with his daughter, she's the person that's making sure all the boring chores get done. And she's the person that's working all the time. And to have that moment where the daughter realizes her mother is an actual human with feelings and not just this bossy woman. And to have her mother be the person that really supports her through this transition period of, like, her figuring herself out. I Was, really was that at her. least based in, in reality of this, like, dynamic between, like... I mean, I feel like this is the case with a lot of families with, where there's, like, the cool parent and then there's yeah, the parent Yeah, I mean, me and my mother, especially during my teen years, we were, like, we still joke that we have a 48-hour rule, which is, like, 48 hours we love each other. Mm. For the 49th hour, it's a different story. Yeah. You know? It's like we can only handle small doses. Yeah, I definitely, I, every yeah. time I go home, I, like, turn into a 13-year-old. Yeah, just you just regress. Yeah. Um, and my father, we, like... No joke, took a road trip cross country. I mm. thought I was going to switch between the car my sister was in, the car he was in. 
And I wound up just hanging out with my dad the yeah. whole time. We memorized Steve Martin's Let's Get Small entire album. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an ongoing windmill game we play it was just like this bizarre road trip that it's like you would imagine Don Quixote style yeah exactly and we I forget we had so many games it was actually the last time I drove a car too which was 1998 wow let's make myself feel old 1998 kids (laughs) they had cars back then they had I know it was it was actually a um a brick that I just rolled with my feet (laughs) back when wheels were square Mm -hmm. why not show it to your sister until it was published I wanted it to be good and I'm a big believer in uh, first drafts being total crap, um, second drafts being... You want, by the time it reached her, you want, yes. not, not that you felt that her influence would be negative on... No, no. Um, I wanted to make sure it was well-written and concise yeah. and honored the struggle she had gone through. And I just wanted her to see it when it was ready. Was so, she helpful at all, though, during the process, even if she wasn't sort of reading your rough drafts? I mean, a little bit. We talked about it a bit. Yeah. Um, but in general, we didn't really talk about it. I mean, it was kind of – it's not something we talk about much as a family because, for me, she's just my sister. Like, she's just – I don't think about no. her sexual orientation at all. Like, I'm very judgmental of anyone she dates, but <laughs> that's just what you do as a sister. So, for me, I didn't want to constantly be like, what's this like? What's this yeah. like? And, you know, I had enough friends and I was reading a lot and I – um we did. I did reach out to a bunch of other sensitivity readers through my publisher. What is a sensitivity reader? Oh, sorry. I'm so used to yeah. talking about that in kids publishing. It's when you have an outside reader that doesn't know anything about the book or anything about the author or the illustrator, and you have them read through it with an eye very focused on whether or not it's politically correct and it properly represents a group of people usually. Why is it important for them to have the disconnect of not knowing who you are? I mean, that was actually my requirement um, because I did know a lot of people that I could have gone to. I have a lot of trans friends um, that were always like, let me read it, let me read it. And mm. I was like, you're just going to be nice. Yeah. And also, you're going to see something that may be kind of off and be like, oh, I know what Colleen meant. Yeah, 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 like, because yeah. you know I'm coming from a good sure. place. But somebody that doesn't know me, they don't have any of those things. They could think I'm like this horrible jerk and like they're going to really be very down to like every single word choice. Which is one like, you know, you've got kids just sort of like pulling it at random off of a bookshelf or, you know, library shelf. But even more than that, yeah, you know, somebody who like at points has worked with children and worked with parents, like yeah. they are, they're kind of, you know, for the benefit of the children <laughs> are kind of like we're looking for the worst in things. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like too, it's, it's, it was this weird balance of making sure it was true to 2004, but didn't have any words or any parts that would be really, really offensive in 2019 or whatever year we're in. I have no idea what year it is. In terms of like, <laughs> like you said, like shemales, like that kind of Yeah, thing? like terms, certain yeah. words that you just wouldn't use. Yeah. Um, even like, I don't want to name some of the words, but there are sure, some sure. things that, you know, just, it was, it was some choices. And certain times it's like, do you call it the thing that kids know now or do you call it yeah. what it was then? Like we decided to call it the GSA. So it was the Gay Straight Alliance, mm. as opposed to now, it would be called like something totally different. So we had to decide what things we kept. You were okay with a little anachronism? Yeah. And what characters use the right pronouns and keep that really consistent. So having characters um, use the wrong pronouns over and over again is hard to read, but... That certainly would have been the a... case in 2004. Yes. It's probably still the case. And we needed to have at now. least like... At first, it was only one person using the right pronouns, and I was like, there needs to be at least two people. So yeah. it doesn't feel like it's 
it feels like it's the right thing to do and this other person is the anomaly that's not using the right person. This brings up an interesting point. This brings up the point of like, you know, again, even like, I guess people sort of on, on the, I guess the, the, the right side of things, again, the context was just different back then. And I don't know how much you're thinking about like people reading this in 10 years or whatever, but like how much of, how much are you thinking about sort of like keeping it evergreen and like almost like, like trying to sort of future proof it? Cause you know that like yeah. the things we say today are not going to be acceptable oh, in yeah. 10 years. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I'm not trying to future-proof it at all. I want it to be a time capsule of the start of this kind of revolution in some ways. You know, 2004, in my mind, is a really, really big year for a lot of that. So I wanted it to be true to that year without being... There are only a couple of times that I decided not to use it. And it wasn't like I substituted another word. I just was like, let's just take out that whole sentence. Like, let's not have anything there. Like, it's unnecessarily... Ellen's art is the most beautiful stuff in the world. Like, I should have taken out more words. I look at it now, and that's my only, like, complaint. I was yeah. like, ugh, what are these words doing on this page? There's yeah. so many. I assume it, it transformed pretty radically since, like, 2004, but it was still, like, the first time you had ever really written for an artist in that way. Yeah. And I had, uh, through college and right after school, I had done plays. So it was actually um, mm. from a playwriting background. So it was I, all words. Got into the yeah, it was yeah. like <laughs> so. I was all about um, just images and words, and um, can see can visualize a page really easily, and can see when I'm going overboard. When we were in like high school, the uh, the, the cultural touchstones would have been like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, yeah. and then like like Sorkin or something, just like <laughs> just very very yeah. wordy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually was watching a lot of Veronica Mars when okay, I was working sure. on it, which you could totally see with a lot of the banter. Yeah. <laughs> like her and her father. She's got a little bit of that sort of like, um, that sort of transatlantic, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that like 50s, like, yeah. <laughs> sass, sassiness. Do you, do you think that working on children's books, not YA books, but children's books has made you better about economy of words? I mean, I've done a few picture books and they were real hard. Yeah. I always said that picture books are like paying, playing uh, Tetris, but only getting the Z pieces constantly. So you're like, how does this fit? Yeah. And if you do it right, it's amazing. I still feel like I have a ways to go with my picture book writing. Like, I think they're good books, but I feel like I'm like, I haven't quite figured it out. Um, and I just finished a middle grade graphic novel. Actually, I finished the second book. The first book is currently being colored for Random House. Um, called Katie the Cat Sitter, which comes out next year. I don't remember when. And that one was actually really great. So I could see how much I've grown even from Kiss and how getting more concise and figuring out like my my little twitches. You know, it's like I use the word well a lot. Everybody mm. starts their sentence with well. Yeah. Um, and kind of also going through and figuring out like almost like a style sheet for characters' voices. And you're like, this person never uses the word I. Like this mm-hmm. person always uses like some kind of like weird sound before they start a sentence like uh or uh like just weird i don't know it's one of these things where it's it's defining a character without exposition yeah yeah yeah. and figuring out how to just let the artist have a lot more room and my my big thing for anybody that's writing graphic novels um or comics when you do your first draft do your first draft get it all out there um when the artist does their pencils go back and take out as many words as you Mm. can because your words are not necessary they are not as important as the art in a lot of places, and it will just get tighter and tighter. So Ellen and I did that a bunch of times back and forth. How much of this is the editor's job, or are you really doing a lot of the heavy lifting, it sounds like? It was sold in 2008, mm-hmm. and it came out in 2019. So it was a very, very long process. So, yeah. um, But Ellen was only involved for the last two years. So it was a long process of editing just the manuscript before it got to 
Um, Why did it take so long? A lot of reasons. It was life stuff. Um, I was no. <laughs> Um, I was working at First Second, yeah. and I was seeing how swamped my editor was, and I just could not be like, hey, so that book I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's extremely – and at the time, too, it was like um, – it was – I had a very hard time selling Kiss Number 8. Um, I think my agent sent it to almost 30 editors, and First Second was the only one that even put any mm. offer in. And Subject was, matter or – Part of it, yeah. Um, there are two publishers in particular, which shall not be named, yeah. but they both came back. Oh, my gosh, I love it, but I'm sorry. We already have a gay book. And they both used the same sentence. <laughs> and both times I was like, oh, she's not yeah. gay. She figures out she's like, just like freaking out. And well, also, yeah, but that's even – that's less of the problem. Was, the problem was, is that we have that We can only have quota, one. Yeah. There can only be one. And thinking yeah. that somehow having a second one is going to cannibalize their first – and then there were other people that just were like, there's no such thing as teen graphic novels, which mm. in 2008, there weren't really. Yeah. It was, again, it was like you skipped over. Like the YA world of graphic novels took more time. And there were books being published, but they weren't selling at all. How much did Raina just like split that open? Like, I mean, she seems like she split the atom from like where I am. She did it for middle grade. Okay. So she's a little younger. Um, she's younger, but even still, I think she'd like just completely shifted oh, people's yeah. expectations for oh. like how much these things could move. Yeah, she is um, Queen Reina. I love her so much. And, and, and Drama was an LGBT book yeah, as well. Yeah, and it's been since banned a lot of places. Oh, yeah. She got so much pushback oh, from that. Yeah. 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 So it's been, um, I mean, Jean Yang paved the way a lot mm-hmm. for. Um, yeah teen graphic novels and I was lucky enough to work with him mm-hmm. on a lot of his books um, so I was getting this guy. like incredible education so I feel like if we had published the book in 2008 one it wouldn't have been as good sure just because I wasn't as strong a writer I hadn't read as much like as the years went on and I had more time waiting for edits I just kept editing myself and just getting like tighter and tighter and it was an incredible time for it to come on not just in terms of the topics that are happening in the politics of the day, but in terms of YA graphic novels being considered, you mm-hmm. know, real literature, it's been probably the last two years that there's even been like shelves for YA graphic novels in bookstores. It was always like, here's the kids' graphic novel section, and then here's the adult ones. First Second started to be known as this great teen publisher, mm-hmm. and specifically for LGBTQ teens. So it was already – people had already found those books and just were kind of like, oh, what are they doing next? And kind of like just grabbed anything to read. So I feel like Kiss wound up in this like great like just moment of people being really thirsty for books about this subject and for really, really teen books, you know, for books that actually spoke directly to them. And um, it just felt like, you know, everything worked out for the best. Yeah, there was another artist that was originally hired before Ellen – and it was 320 pages, and the person was in college when they got hired. Yeah. So, and now they're 72. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you move to the city with the expectation that you were going to be a, a full-time writer? I always wanted to be a kid's book writer. But that um, that would just be the thing that you did? I mean, that was always the dream, but I realized, I think, after a month of working yeah. in children's publishing, that that's barely anyone could do that. Yeah. You saw how the sausage was made. Do you, do you feel like that was positive for your desire to continue writing? I think it made me a better writer. Like I just got to read so much and saw how passionate people in the industry are. Like um, kids book people and yeah. comic book people are similar in the sense that it is smaller communities. And we are so excited when anyone's book does well. 
That's one takeaway. I mean, the flip side of that is you could have been totally disillusioned by how yeah. impossible it is. Yeah, and I mean, I, I wrote I mean, Kiss was the first thing I started, but it took me four years. And during those four years, I wrote other things mm-hmm. that just kept getting rejected places. You know, I think it's over 30 things I wrote that wow. just got rejected yeah. or I rejected it myself because they were just really bad. <laughs> how, how many How many times does something get rejected where you just give up on it? I mean, I immediately gave up on almost everything that okay. got rejected. I never went back to – there's a lot of first drafts of yeah. of things that I've done. Like even like full-length novels, there's two of them that exist. That's <laughs> got to be heartbreaking, right? I mean the hardest part was um, sometimes you really, really love the characters and you feel like they're being like ripped away from you. Yeah. And they're not getting to actually live. Um, there's, is there – I mean are there things that you can repurpose or it, once it's dead, it's dead? There's actually one I'm going to go back to and it was a, a teen graphic novel – no, not a teen graphic novel. It was a teen novel with words, lots of words. And I want to go back and make it a graphic novel because I think it would actually be really fun mm. visual-wise. Visual-wise. That is totally – That works. Totally a term. That's why you're a writer because <laughs> you use terms like visual-wise. Um, and it was, it was a fairly solid book, but it just kind of didn't go anywhere yeah. and – it had way too many characters, and at that point in time, you know, I was still, like, I was probably, like, 26 when I wrote that one. I didn't have the heart to kill them off. And now I'm like, those four people got to go. Not, not the point dark. of the story. Kill, kill, kill them off. I guess <laughs> kill, like kill your off. darlings is yeah. sort of the term. Well, they're and, my darlings. They're just yeah. side. Why does she have that many sisters? She doesn't need that many sisters. Too many storylines. But, yeah, so that one I'm probably going to go back to, which will be the first time I've gone back to something with the exception. I did a middle grade graphic novel. Wrote the whole thing, submitted it out. A lot of people liked it, didn't love it. And I, at the same point, was like, I need an editor. I don't know what happened in the second half of this book. And um, it got rejected all the way out. And rejections for books are funny because they come not in a batch. It's not like you're like, I sent the book out and up, got all my rejections. Mm. They could come like six months to a year later. So when you're finally over being rejected, you get another email that's like, oh, just want you to know we rejected your book. And I was like, I know you did. It's been a year. You're not like keeping the lighthouse on somewhere off? No. I'm like, it's dead if it hasn't gotten an offer in a month, in my mind. Sure. Um, Has the flip side of that ever happened? Have you ever been accepted like a month or a year out? No. Okay. Anything that I've sold – has gotten an offer within a week. Which so is rule not of common. thumb within within a month or a week, it's kind of no. I would say more like within three months. Okay. Um, but I mean, I work in the industry, so I think because of that, they're giving me a little bit more. Like, I yeah. There's a, a, a kind of like respect, being like, ah, oh, yes, you're a children's book person. You work for the lowest salary ever. Let me yeah. read your manuscript. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's probably got to be some like Hudsucker proxy style story where somebody like yeah. found a manuscript like propping up a table. Oh, yeah, and... I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure there is definitely some of that stuff. But um, yeah, this one graphic novel I wrote wasn't great, but it had these two characters that were completely side characters, like 100 percent. Mm. They were in two scenes in the entire 200 page book. And it was just a sloth that was dancing. But he wasn't moving because he was so slow. slow. And it was um, a porcupine that was staring at him, so excited, watching him dance. And, like, every time I would cut back to them, he, she would still be staring with this huge smile on her face. And he would have moved his arm very slightly. And there's it was one a visual th- joke. Yeah, it was totally a visual joke. And um, the end, near the end, she's like, you guys missed the high kick. It was the best four hours mm. of my life. <laughs> and just those characters, I love them so much of, like, this one character that doesn't talk and barely moves. And this friend that's, like, so patient yeah. and so supportive no matter what. 
And I took those two characters, and those are that became my um, series with Harper Collins for our picture books. Mervyn the Sloth is about to do the best thing in the world. It was so great to get those characters to actually live on, and it got illustrated by Ruth Chan, who's like the best. Um, I'm kind of amazed I got a book illustrated by Ruth Chan because I feel like she's like so hot right now mm. in the children's book world. If you don't know who she is, and she's doing her own writing too, so I feel like I got in there right before she started like publishing a million books and doing great. You seem to be pretty happy with, you know, doing, working on both sides and, and working in, in publishing outside of just the writing. But is that still the dream of to go, to go full time with writing? No, but close to it. I mean, the dream would definitely be part-time writing. Mm-hmm. Which and is just then, happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting better. But you want a larger part of the time? You don't sell books for much. Like I've, I'm most... saying, like in, a, in an ideal world. <laughs> in would, an ideal world, um, would you be living world... in a cabin in the woods and just writing full Hell time? No. Um, I would be doing uh, animal rescue work probably for half the time. Maybe rabbits, maybe mm-hmm. bats. I don't know. They're very similar. Those They're not similar rabbits at all. with wings. Yeah, rabbits with wings. Yeah. Flying foxes basically are. Yeah. They are the sweetest. Um, yeah, I would do some kind of job that was like more with my hands and more with my heart, and then. Things that aren't staring at a computer. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'd really like that. I don't think I'm the kind of person that ever wants to be a 100% full-time writer. I see my friends that do it. They they do great and they do great work. But every single day they're so stressed and they're in their own head. And they're staring at a blank screen. And they're worried that they don't have any more words in them. As opposed to me who has a day job and a couple other side jobs. And sure, a couple of day jobs it yeah, sounds like exactly. at this point. Yeah, <laughs> I spend a lot of time at those day jobs, like doing design, but at the mm-hmm. same time in my head being like, oh, wait, I could do this with a story. And when I finally sit down to the computer, it's not a daunting thing. It's so, exciting. So the design work affords you the ability to kind of have your brain. It's a different side of my yeah. brain. Yeah. It's just this interesting visual creative side that's kind of pushing storytelling because I have the time to just think about it. And I sit down and start typing very fast. And luckily, I'm a fast typer. And... um my friends that I write with once a week are always like, come on, Colleen. <laughs> like, basically, like, and I was like, I only write once a week. Yeah. Like, I have to get this done. How did you get into design but not illustration? I went to school. I wanted to be an illustrator. Yeah. So I wanted to do kids' books and write and illustrate. That was my dream. That was – I went to school for um, writing and studio art or, or English and studio art were my double major. And I had a minor in gender studies, mm-hmm. um, which was accidental. I found out on my diploma. I was like, oh, whoops. How, how, does, how do you fall into gender studies? <laughs> I took every women in class. I see. It was like women in film, women in art, women I in see. this. And I took a lot of those classes. Yeah. So. You, you just, <laughs> I was like, oh. You were a compiler, yeah, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> You sort of circled around illustration, but you ended up doing design, and you but but you ended up working with a lot of illustrators. Yes, so you, I, clearly you're interested in comics. I was interested in comics in college. I learned to find art very stressful. I found mm. the art classes stressful. I found the teachers stressful. Um, you just felt you weren't good enough. Yeah, it just was like I couldn't. I could draw a bird's nest in front of me, and I would take three months to draw it. But for me to just draw a character out of my head, it was very hard for me to mm. do. And I saw friends doing this incredible work, and I'm all about, like, collaborating. And for me to be able to collaborate with someone, like, that's, like, the dream for me. Like, yeah. I don't want to be the one person sitting by myself, like, thinking about this book. I'm never going to be as good as if I'm working with someone else, and they're helping me get better and better with every panel. They help with the writing in a way? Yes and no. I mean, 
The manuscript's done separately, and then mm-hmm. they get it, but then the questions they ask and the conversations we have as we go back and forth with the pencils and the thumbnails. Um, the script is evolving as the art's coming in. Yeah. Yeah, and once the art gets placed, a lot of times, too, I'm just like, get rid of that word balloon, get rid of this. Like, there was actually narration through the entire Kiss Number 8 that we got rid of all, mm-hmm. almost all of the narration boxes because it just was totally unnecessary and blocking a lot of really fun foreheads. <laughs> yeah, you forget how much heavy lifting the art canon should do, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, because the, I've definitely read a lot of comics where I was just like, this does not need to be a comic. <laughs> and if it doesn't need to be a comic, it probably shouldn't be a comic. Totally. And that's the thing. I am so excited about the things that comics can do that prose can't that it's hard for me to do prose because I'm just like, oh, prose, you don't have any control over how your reader reads this. Yeah. And in comics, you can like – change the pace of their reading entirely by like the number of panels per page or you have the page turn reveal to a double page spread that can just like knock them over you know i get so mad at um there was one version of why the last man where they did the um they had removed an ad Mm -hmm. that had been in the original comic so everything was off by one page Mm. and there was like two big reveals where you were Mm. supposed to turn the page but because they removed that one ad they both like were just right there and Having read it with the ads and be like, whoa, yeah. I like turn the page and it was like, I don't know if you remember the scene with the decaying girlfriend. Yeah. It was disgusting. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, and then being like, oh, man, come on. I think about that a lot when it comes to like digital comics. And just yeah. Like, you don't have the same thing. Like people reading panel by panel. It's yeah. just not the same. There are obviously new opportunities and yeah. I think people are exploring that to some degree, but it's just <laughs> – <laughs> repurposing it for different mediums to, tends not to work. So when they first started putting For Better or For Worse online, she yeah. was like, it has to be different because it's oh. online. And she okay. had it so that it would the characters would blink, but like really occasionally yeah. to the point that you just felt like you were losing your mind. Sure. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I was really on board. Um, yes, yeah, so I think people have not – like the only person – not the only person, but the person that I think – explored the internet in a way that I like got giddy every time she did anything is Emily Carroll. Mm. Like her online comics cannot exist in print in the same way. The same way that a story that you do as a comic should not be able to exist in prose in the same way. Like if you're doing it right. But like his face all red, it's got one scene where you know that there's something in the bottom of this well and you're starting at the top with everybody at the well and you have to scroll and you're like going down the well with your like scroll we talked. So good. We talked about this years ago, and I think it was like a, a formative book for both of us, maybe in different ways. Uh-huh. But there's a monster at the end of this book. Oh my gosh! I've got. There's right there. It's yeah. my tattoo. The Grover book. <laughs> it's the best. It's so good. And just how it teaches you like irony, and 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 how how it's the book is just based entirely on the format of a book. It yeah. works because it's a book. But it's not like – I feel like a lot of books that do that too, and I'm a little guilty of it too, are like kind of winking at the reader the yeah. whole time being like, I'm so clever. But this was like – it was so much about the kid and Grover, like having this interaction. Mm. And it's just – if you haven't read it, it is the most wonderful book. I think it's the best picture book I've ever done. Like I said I said it. I'm done. But as somebody who sort of works on its side and has worked in publishing a lot and does design, do you think a lot about format? Yeah, I mean, um, format meaning like the just, just the physical book, you know, like the Art Spiegelman conversations about these sort of importance of, of the medium and what you can and can't do, the constraints and the and what it affords you. Yeah, I mean, I love um, talking about just even like things like paper stock yeah. and like whether or not the book should have flaps or not. Or when it's your own book, you're probably a real pain in the ass. Actually, no, no, I'm really mellow. And for me, I was really big into. 
cutting down, they actually added a bunch of specs back to Kiss Number 8 because I was like, make this affordable for teens. Mm. And then they started selling the books at a much higher price point. They're like, oh, we actually have to sell it at this price point just because if we make it lower, yeah. it'll hurt our other books. By specs, you mean just sort of like premium? Yeah, like things like um, French flaps that they usually have. Yeah. Like they did embossing on the cover. They did spot gloss. They did, you know, all these little things. The paper is like an uncoated kind of toothy paper that like soaks up the ink in a really lovely way sort but doesn't like have show through. Yeah. yeah. So that's a big thing is like you could have that uncoated paper, but a lot of times it has show through if you have dark blacks. So – just testing all these like things, I get really nerdy about it. Um, it. It sounds vaguely sexual. I'm going to be honest. When you're describing it. <laughs> I'm like in the headbands. Oh my god, that's the best. So yeah, paper overboard was the hardcover, and we got like I didn't get to choose the headband color, which is the tiny little thing right where they sew the pages yeah. on, which is like the last thing you choose, and nobody gives a crap about it ever. Do you feel like because it's somebody else's job to do that on your own book that you kind of you let them? You let yeah. them do their job. I think because I've worked with people that have been difficult to sure. work with that I'm very easy to work with. And yeah. I get so excited that I'm not doing it that I'm like, it's magic. This design happened. And like I have very um, – very like set notes. Like I always give notes. Um, but I think over the years what's made me a good art director has been um, I'm really good at giving notes in a way that doesn't feel like you're being attacked and that feels like it's collaboration. So I've gotten really great results from artists because it doesn't feel like I'm just making them do work for the sake of work or yeah. I'm doing something to ruin their, you know, artistic vision. It feels like we're coming through together and be like, how do we make this super awesome? I assume that's the hard thing is sort of is is trying to be true to their vision, but also whatever things you have to deal with as far as being like a house style and like maintaining any sort of aesthetic consistency across a brand. I mean, I've been pretty lucky that there's places that don't have like really really firm house yeah. styles. The only one of the only house styles at first second is something that I started which is that there has to be an image on the spine. Mm. I was sick of like spines that were like, oh, it's a wrapper and cover. It's so great. And then yeah. you see the spine and it's like blobs of color and it's like something no you can like identify. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think about it as every book has three covers. And if one of your covers isn't good, it's not going to work. So I think that gets back to the earlier question of thinking about in the format like there are certain things that I wouldn't consider that you have to consider what is a physical object. And one of those is like sitting in a library or sitting on a bookshelf. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am a big believer that if you have a bad spine, it's going to really hurt your book. Um, uh, both, you're, both like yeah. in books and in people. <laughs> and breaky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So true. Um, and also your book cover better look really good in like half inch by half inch format. Cause that's the way a lot of people are going to see it yeah. now. So if your book cover does not look good that tiny, it's probably not actually a good book cover. And it's not meaning that it has to be a super bold design of just like a giant character's head, but it has to be intriguing enough for someone to want to click and make it bigger. So it's all about getting something that's intriguing in a tiny, tiny little way. The idiom, you can't judge a book by a cover. Like you you're... should absolutely judge a book by its cover, 100%. Like, did that person, like, fight for a good cover? If <laughs> if it isn't a good cover, think about the company. What are they doing? Why is sales in charge? Like, I don't know. I, I am – there are bad covers on good books. But I think more than uh, – more often than not nowadays, especially in children's publishing, there are so many exceptional designers. Um, my gosh, they just released the covers for the Cinder series, which was um, – uh, sci-fi retellings of a bunch of fairy tales. Cinder was Cinderella. He's a comic book artist. Mm -hmm. And they hired him to do these covers. And he did them, and they were like, 
painfully neon in the most glorious way. Like you look at it and your eyes kind of hurt and it's so intriguing and his character designs are incredible. And um, the first cover was good, but this is like, you see the passion that these, like this whole publishing house has for these books by hiring this artist to redo the whole package. And it's like a anniversary edition. Um, so, I mean, yes, there are a lot of books with bad covers. And if you wind up being a person with a book with a bad cover, mm-hmm. that's okay. <laughs> There's always the paperback. <laughs> but yeah, I do think you should kind of judge judge a publishing house. Like, judge them. Judge them. And let them know the cover's bad. <laughs> but there's also stories, like, Raina actually talked about this, where when she first saw the Smile cover, she was really upset and yeah. wanted them to change it. And it wasn't until she saw Kid's reaction and she realized that every single kid that saw that cover saw themselves in it. They and now that's her style. That's the style, yeah. And it, it does a great job. And, I mean, Drama's the only one that doesn't have that, and it, or I guess Ghosts also. And they're both great covers. But they're still really, like, kind of minimalist and just focusing yeah. on a couple characters. Um, I mean, it seems like your book is a little bit about kind of maintaining the mystery, right? Of making yeah. it compelling to pick off the shelf but not necessarily giving people a ton of insight. Yeah. Um, there's actually been a few people that have been very angry because they're like, I thought this was going to be a funny rom-com. <laughs> and, like, why is it so dark? And Because um, life, kid. There's a thing a lot of... <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I sometimes read bad reviews online, like yeah. you do. My favorite bad review that I've gotten a few times is people stop reading at 156, which is a page that I think... That's right, like right halfway it's through halfway, it. and it's the page where it's um, he's talking about his mother and what he remembers about his mother, and he's talking about how she was a horrible person. And you see what actually happened. So it's this um, unreliable narrator, but as a reader... Because it's in the graphic novel format, you could see the truth. And you see that his mother was actually an incredible person. And he either doesn't remember it or he chooses to lie. And you don't know what it is. Um, And his comments about um, his mother transitioning, I'm giving away something, um, are so unkind and harsh. But because they're so harsh, it the juxtaposition with that really beautiful scenes of her who became him playing with their son. Like it just, that's what really punched you in the gut. It wasn't that it was an offensive scene. It was that you're realizing this character you are really siding with for the first half of the book is a bad person in some ways and was really unkind to his parent. Hmm. Um, I feel that way with, um, not that it's connected in any way other than, like, there's a big thing where you're like, yeah, way to go! Like, Death Note. I, for, I get 13 books. And for the first, like, four books, you're like, yeah, kill those yeah. serial killers. You're the best. And then, like, the fifth book, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. I think you're a serial killer. And it's, like, this moment of realizing you've been rooting for a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I like those moments of, like, kind of, like... Being like, hey, reader, guess what? You don't know what you're th- like talking about. You don't and know bo- these people. And But you know for a fact that people are are just not reading the book beyond that? Yes, they actually wrote, like, page 156. Mm. I've never read anything so offensive. Yeah. How dare you? And I was like, did it. Yay. I got you really upset. So I guess I did something right. So that and making people cry is, like, the weirdest compliments. Yeah. I'm like, feel good I made you cry, but I really feel bad I made you cry. But...